understand how our brains respond to stress and trauma. Julie and Ginger are joined by Jessica Sinarski, therapist, national trainer, and founder of Brave Brains and author of three incredible children's books. In Riley the Brave, Jessica helps children learn that there are different types of brave and that our brains are designed for survival. So if you've had trauma, your brain will be brave in ways that are different than if you have not. As Jessica says, if you learn that adults are not safe, it's really courageous to learn to trust them. Jessica helps us, as adults, to better help children to be able to reframe the narrative around what their brains are doing in response to the traumatic experiences they have endured. Let's join the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Ginger Healy. And I'm Julie Beam. And if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, You probably know that we believe in understanding the science behind how brains develop and how our emotional health. Yes, I do. Pick me, pick me. I'll talk about that. I know that about you, but if we let you tell us what you know, we're going to hit with words like amygdala, dopamine, anterior, cingulate, gyrus, and frankly, that language is just going to overwhelm us. Okay. All right. So who should we talk to? If someone could just tell us what we need to know about the brain in a way that we can understand it. Well, actually, we do have a guest joining us today that you're absolutely going to love. I am so excited to introduce Jessica Sinarski. She is a licensed professional counselor of mental health, and her superpower is making brain science accessible and entertaining for children and adults alike. She's a national speaker, writer, and clinical supervisor at an adoption agency. And one of the things I love about her is that she is an author of books that have really spoken to my heart that I have used in my practice. Riley the Brave, Riley the Brave Goes Back to School, What's Inside Your Backpack. And we cannot wait to just dive into those books. Jessica talks about reframing the narrative. And so I think that's where we ought to start. What does that mean to you, Jessica? And tell us, gosh, everything you have to tell us. (laughs) Well, first, thank you so much for having me on and for that delightful introduction. I really do love taking my brain nerdy self and marrying it with what I feel like everybody could benefit from knowing about the brain and attachment and development. And so that's what I try to bring forward in the books that I write. I think the the best place to start is really, as we're thinking about reframing the narrative, I think sometimes trauma gives this bad rap of like, oh, poor thing, oh, you know, We don't want to end up stuck in a victim mentality and for trauma survivors that there's an element of like, I should have done better or why didn't I fight it off or why didn't I all of these things when what we know to be true now from polyvagal theory from what we're learning about, you know, interpersonal neurobiology is that our brains and bodies respond for survival and that we have all of these protective mechanisms like fight or flight, like freezing, you know, collapsing, that are really there to help us survive impossible circumstances. Unfortunately, those can linger. You know, we can start to get a really sensitive alarm system that detects danger everywhere, even where there might be safety. And so those same things that keep us alive 
can get us in trouble later, whether that's, you know, a kid who's experienced some early trauma and now they're in a safe home or their parents have done some work and become safer adults for them, or if it's kids who are living with some high stress and trauma at home and are coming into the school and trying to learn and feel if school is a safe setting, or even into adulthood, you know, we all have ways that our downstairs brain powers try to take over. I know you've talked about that language on the podcast before. What I presented as in Riley the Brave is that he was brave like a tiger. He was brave like a turtle in these other circumstances. And now he's learning to be what I, you know, call brave like a cub. You know, he's learning these new ways to be brave because actually, if you have learned that adults are not safe, it is really courageous <laughs> to trust them, to comply. You know, I would always get so infuriated with the diagnosis oppositional defiant disorder. Every kid in foster care seemed to have quote unquote oppositional defiant disorder. No, no, no. They had adapted to their environment and learned that adults didn't know what the heck they were talking about. <laughs> and so that was a way of protecting self. It doesn't mean they have to stay there. What I love about putting brain science into action is that we get to hold this beautiful both and. Hard things happened and you are strong and courageous. And there are new ways to be that you don't have to, you don't have to always respond like a tiger, react like a tiger, that you can have times that you notice that tiger trying to protect you and take a breath and, you know, let your upstairs brain engage so that you can have close relationships and feel the joy of connection and all those wonderful things that make us human. That's a long answer to the reframing of the narrative, but that's the story that I want everybody to hold, you know. Wow. There was so much in there and I'm so glad that you took the time to tell that in that detail. Can you tell us why you chose to do this in books and materials mm. that are child-based and what that does for you. You bet. So if you're not familiar with any of my work, you might, I don't know how you're picturing all of this, but these are bright, colorful characters that engage. So with Riley, we have this bear, we have elephants, we have, you know, some other friend characters. With what's inside your backpack, there's Zoe, who's the little girl who's unpacking the weight in her backpack. And her mom is a snappy dresser. I kind of want mom's outfit in the book. You know, there's purples and greens and yellows. And I purposely wanted to create books that I would want to read with my kids, that the kids that I work with would want to read and reread. So I've been a therapist now, I'm coming up on 20 years. And I found that so many quote unquote therapy books, the kids I worked with wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. They're like, oh, you know, they see the cover and they're like, mm, get away from me. I didn't want that. So not only is there just that appeal, but the other thing that's so super cool about picture books and just story in general is that it hits a different part of the brain. So I see some nodding along and what I'm going to try to say in like user-friendly speak is there's this network in our brain where we go when we're sort of alone with ourselves, the default mode network. It's this front to back connection. That is an underdeveloped network for kids with trauma histories because it hasn't been safe to go there because life is scary and my inside is scary and I've had to protect and defend and not be quiet and still. 
And we know that one of the best ways to reach the default mode network is through story. And so part of why I love the picture book genre is that we reach that inner workings of the brain that can really connect to help change that child, that adult's story, their internal you know, dialogue about who they are and how they are and how they can be in the world. That's my nerdy explanation for picture books. <laughs> That's so awesome, Jessica, because just today I was talking with a mom whose child has had an early background of neglect and she's having trouble teaching her how to settle, how to take a break mm. in the afternoon. She needs a break because otherwise come close to dinner time and she's having problems. And so she was looking for what can I do to help her get into that calm space when she doesn't want to sit quietly. She doesn't want to take that break or go there. And we know children who've been impacted by trauma have a really hard time with that. And I said, can you read books? Can you snuggle up you know, with her weighted blanket and read? And it just made sense because that's what we do for our children at bedtime anyway. But you've just added another layer as to what that could help her do in her brain. And so I appreciate that greatly. I love that. I had an experience. It, okay. So this morning, as I was preparing for this podcast, I went over to my bookshelf to pull Riley off and he wasn't there. And I remembered that somebody is borrowing it, that I had lent it to. Because, <laughs> and that happens often. And I end up having to buy more than one copy, but <laughs> I've used that book so much because exactly what you're saying you don't even necessarily need to read every word. Sometimes it's just sitting with that picture. There's the one picture in it that shows what's going on inside his stomach. And it's so visually stunning. It just evokes so much emotion for me as a reader that it's just such a powerful way to validate what is going on inside you because trauma can be so isolating and make you feel like you're the only one and put all these doubts in your mind. And so to have it there in front of you, it's like, I'm not alone. You know, it's just, it's a powerful thing. I mean, these books are, you know, picture books for children, but they're so much more than that. They're for teachers and they're for parents and caregivers. And the other thing that I love is in the back of the book, you've got the for grown-ups section, you know, that kind of teaches what else you can do with the book, how else you can use it as a tool. And at least for me, I haven't found that in other books. And so I don't even have a question. I just wanted to... (laughs) for that because it has really impacted my practice and how I work with children and my go-to when, you know, that's why someone's borrowing my book right now. Here's a tool. Here's a very useful tool. So thank you for that. That means so much to me, Ginger, because that was really my hope. So Riley the Brave in particular was born out of, so I had been involved with a sort of study group with John Balin around the brain and putting the neuroscience in practice. And we always seemed to come around to the now what, like, what do we do? And we know there are lots of things to do and lots of things to get trained in. And I continue to get all the training I can in all the things, but we still needed a bridge. I felt like between 
sort of the parent experience and helping kids understand all these things that were going on in their brains. And so that's really my hope with Brave Brains, with the organization that I founded, is to help bridge that gap. There is phenomenal research being done. There are great practitioners, and I feel really fortunate to be another voice in this space of bridging research and practice and really taking these complicated concepts and making them tangible. And I'm so grateful to my illustrators because I think they both did a phenomenal job of that same thing, of taking these complicated concepts and making them visual and bringing them to life in ways that were meaningful. And actually that reminds me, I don't know that I've told this story on a podcast yet, the illustrator for What's Inside Your Backpack, she reached out to me after the book had come out and shared with me that she actually had a really profound experience while illustrating it. That sort of putting on this metaphor of the heavy things that we carry and being able to set them aside and being able to ask for help and knowing that you're not alone, like exactly what you just mm -hmm. said, Ginger, that others feel like this. I am whole, I am accepted, I am normal, whatever normal is. And there's a way forward that that was really meaningful to her. And that just brought tears to my eyes. And you can see it in the illustrations. It really comes through that this is a story, even though it's a, you know, it's a more specific story than Riley is in some ways. It's a story that we can all relate to, that we all have things that we carry around that we need to set aside. Just like Riley, we all have porcupine moments. We all have tiger moments. Trauma or no trauma, we all have downstairs brains and that's what they do. So that's really, you know, again, part of my hope with this work is to make it practical and tangible and put a little bit of that brain science in the afterward so that you have some ideas for not only just how to use the book, but ideas for parenting, ideas for dealing with transitions, ideas for what behavior means. Because I think we're all working a little harder on putting that brain-based lens on so that we're not just focusing on behavior and behavior modification, but really digging deeper into where is this nervous system? Where is this child in their brain? Where am I in my brain? Oh, geez, I just flipped into power and control. I want to shut it down. That means that my downstairs brain is taking over. And so I need to take a beat and get my upstairs brain back online if I'm going to be helpful in this situation. Let's go back a little bit to Brave Brains and just kind of continue this, but let you focus in a little bit more on what your practice is doing, what that organization specifically is doing, because I think it's really important that people who are teachers, people who are community leaders who work with children's programming in any way, know about your organization as a resource and understand how amazing it is when we teach children about brains. I mean, we know yeah. that from our work in trauma-informed schools and from the work that's reflected back to us is that children gravitate to this science to understand mm -hmm. and, and it gives them ways to even explain what's going on inside themselves, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I founded Brave Brains, again, in that bridging the gap space. And so my hope is that 
If you're a teacher who just wants a little more information, go to the website, go to the school's page, browse through, click some of the links. There are some free resources that can be immediately useful for you in the classroom. I don't want to leave anybody out. It's not some special program that everybody has to get trained in doing it the Brave Brains way. Really, I want to be a supplement to a lot of good work that's already out there that might be missing a little bit of the population you know, or might be missing a little bit of that trauma lens. And so, you know, it's all the way down from the community professional that just wants some resources to use in therapy or maybe wants a little continuing education through to, you know, doing district-wide professional development, doing deeper dives. One of the things I super, super loved this last year was taking a course online that I call Moving Beyond Trauma-Informed. We do a deep dive into a book by John Balin and Dan Hughes called The Neurobiology of Attachment-Focused Therapy. And I had the great good fortune to, you know, dive deep with John about that work and then have taught it several times since. And this was the first time taking it online. And we did it over six months. And it was a wide variety from like parents and therapists and teachers and school counselors. And I think we had some OTs and just a wide variety of people coming together to learn the neuroscience and how to put it in action. And so we would meet every other week or so over the lunch hour for about an hour. and. It was just so fruitful and uplifting. And that was a lovely, you know, version of the deep dive that is possible. So that's my hope with the website and what continues to come out is that there's some resources there to go and digest for yourself, as well as if you're planning an event, if you want something specific for your organization, I do a lot of speaking, presenting, consulting around putting this all into action. So this probably isn't a deep topic, but I've heard you use the term super speed highways of protection. Mm. And that's meaningful to me personally, because years ago, my daughter is 25 at this point, we had a therapist give us not exactly those words, but was talking to us, not with all the brain science behind it, but about the negative super highway in my daughter's mm-hmm. brain. And so mm-hmm. we have that language in our house and we talk about which highway are you on <laughs> is how we talk about that and which one are we trying to build. So can you explain to the audience what that means, super speed highways of protection? You bet. So our brains, they're not a static thing. Dr. Nim Tottenham from Columbia University, she talks about this beautifully and brings it to life. It's not this pink glob that we often think of. There are chemical and electrical and all kinds of things happening all the time in the brain. And brain development is really not about getting more neurons. It's about where those neurons are connecting. And so if you think of a newborn, if a baby is hungry, they cry, right? They flip their little lid, their upstairs brain goes offline. Not that they have much of an upstairs brain going yet. They cry. And when do they stop crying? When that need is met and not a moment sooner. So what happens after thousands of times of meeting that need, good enough, not perfectly, right? We know we attune, we miss a tune, we get back in sync and repair meeting that need good enough thousands of times, some neural connections begin to form, some super speed highways start to get laid down in the brain between the downstairs and upstairs brain. That's really that first connection that happens. 
And so that when a baby is three months old, maybe you rock and hold and give the binky and give some soothing, lots of sensory input, and maybe they're not fussing as much until they have food in their mouth, right? And at six months, you might be able to say, I see you, I know you're hungry. I see you licking those lips, I see it. And then at nine months, they're able to, you know, tell you in other ways that they're hungry. That's all due to those highways being laid down so that a hunger sensation does not immediately send danger, 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 panic like it did when they were newborn. Mm -hmm. But for so many of our kids, for so many of us, our bodies and brains are still sending danger, danger, danger signals in situations that are maybe okay, right? Like the raise in someone's eyebrows or the tone of someone's voice, or maybe it is feeling a little bit hungry. If you haven't always had enough food, your brain is a survival machine. And so it's gonna send panic, 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 even though you have lots of instances of having enough. And that's where we get stuck on that super speed highway to the downstairs brain. So with all the grownups that I work with and the kids too, but I talk about this a lot in presentations about tuning into what our actual goal is. Our actual goal isn't just compliance for compliance sake. Our actual goal is to build new super speed highways, to build those highways to the upstairs brain that let the child have some self-regulation, mm -hmm. let the child have some sense of efficacy, let the child have some, you know, healthy problem solving skills that don't all need tiger claws and turtle shells, right? I think that has been a helpful metaphor. And I didn't come up with that. The house model of the brain, the sort of upstairs, downstairs, that's Dan Siegel and Tina mm -hmm. Payne Bryson. And these highways, you know, as we think about what our goal really is, our goal is restoring trust. Our goal is safety. Mm -hmm. Our goal is communicating that we're in this together, that co-regulation so that we can get to self-regulation. I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say that co-regulation always, always, always comes first, always precedes self-regulation. It's so good just to hear it all spelled out like that, you know, because we know it in our hearts. It just feels right. It resonates with us, but to really kind of get specific about it, because I think as caregivers, it's hard sometimes to keep that bigger picture in mind that that's what's going on. And I think sometimes it comes because I've heard you say this before, trauma begets trauma, and that we may have not done our own work yet in being able to co-regulate. And so can you kind of talk about that and how important yeah. it is to do our own work and how we can do that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll say a couple of things on that. The first is that for parents, for teachers who are spending eight hours a day with kids, it's normal that you flip your lid. It's normal that this is hard. I have a lot of jobs. The hardest by far is parenting. Mm -hmm. It is a super challenging job that teaches me my limits, that teaches me a lot about how my brain works and when I'm going to flip my lid, which leads to why we have to do our own work, that it's really not fair. There are layers of things not being fair. Maybe you had some experiences that were not good and not fair, and that's not your fault. 
probably not even your parents' fault. You know, they're just layers and layers that often happen with intergenerational trauma or systemic racism. Like there's just lots and lots of factors at play. Now we're at the here and now. Now we're at the rubber meets the road and this kid's driving me crazy and I'm not the person that I thought I was gonna be with them. I can't expect the child to do all the changing. I've heard before the idea that with plants, that if a flower is not flourishing, you don't blame the flower, you feed the soil, you nourish the environment, you maybe move it to a sunnier spot, you do things to help the environment, make it a place that the flower can flourish. I am more convinced than ever, than ever that inside of each of us is this beautiful potential for humanity, for growth, for connection, for, yeah, for all of the things that we are hoping for in life. And when we can come alongside each other, when we can admit, hey, I'm not handling this well, or gosh, I didn't deal with my infertility grief, or I am putting some things on this kid that really are about my mom or my grandmom. And I probably need to do some work on that. That is, again, I think just super courageous because it's easy to just bury your head in the sand and, you know, wish the problem away. And we're all so tired right now. I actually just started back in therapy and I was talking to my therapist and saying, I don't know why I thought I had time for this. I guess I'm choosing to make time for this. <laughs> you know, I think that's where we have to get to sometimes is like, well, I'm just putting it in my calendar because this has to happen. And of course you have to find the right fit. Maybe it's not therapy. Maybe there's some pastoral counseling, or maybe you're just really prioritizing your yoga practice or meditation or some of those other bottom up practices, massage therapy. I mean, there's studies now about this that massage therapy might be a precursor to talk therapy, that before you're ready to talk about reconnecting your body and brain, you might need some physical massage work to help you reconnect your body and brain. Do it. That's great. And I know, you know, there are costs involved with a lot of these things and insurance and all the red tape that goes with it. But my hope is that we keep making the necessity of it more known and with that, the availability of it more prominent. Take the shame out of self-care, you know, yes. no reason why we can't help each other heal in community, you know, by supporting each other and talking about it and normalizing it because we are all struggling and that's okay. You know, yeah. there are ways to not get stuck in it that we can move forward. And so that's why you know, your books and your brave brain work and all that is so important because that's how we move forward is with those tools and strategies. So Jessica, to use the metaphor of your book, do you think that everyone's backpacks are heavier these days? Mm -hmm. And if so, what's the solution? Yeah, that's a good question. I think resoundingly, as you're listening to this, you're probably nodding along like, yes, of course my backpack's heavy right now. <laughs> you know, I think the incidents of violence on airplanes and against wait staff and teacher, like the uptick in all of those things, like downstairs brains are taken over and it is taking a lot more work for our upstairs brains to be in charge. So as far as solution, so one of the things I tried to do in the backpack book was make it a little bit more concrete about some of those resilience factors. You know, sometimes we think of self-care as bath bombs and pedicures, and that's all well and good. My nails are painted, like I like a good hot shower, but 
what we're talking about for trauma really is that neurobiological self-care that go into therapy and getting enough sleep and having some greens with that thing that you want to eat because you're super stressed. It's those things that will give your brain and your body the power to keep going. I think that's a piece of it. I also think there's a few things I put in the story. One is imagine with hope that, you know, worry really makes us want to imagine with fear and think about all of the bad things that will happen, but we can notice that not shame ourselves about it, not beat ourselves up, but say, oh my goodness, fear brain's taken over. (sighs) You know what? I am going to imagine how this conversation could go well, instead of thinking about all the ways that it could go poorly. Or I'm going to imagine, you know, gosh, three months from now, I'm going to know these students a lot better than I know them now. And that will make it so much easier to light up their learning brain and be the teacher that I want to be. That's a cognitive practice. And so sometimes, well, you heard me do it. Sometimes we have to start with our breath. We have to start with getting that, getting that pause. So do it with me. If you're listening, (laughs) just take one big deep breath in and breathe all the way out until you don't think you can squeeze any more air. Breathe one more little breath of air out. and let your shoulders drop and see if it's maybe just a smidge easier to carry what you're left with. Maybe now you're not carrying such a big bag of stress. You know, you still have the, you know, difficulty of teaching in COVID or the raising a child with special needs or, you know, whatever those things are that you're carrying around. I can't take those away, but we can lighten the load even things that we've been already talking about today, reframe the narrative, you know, how we talk to ourselves matters. And so if it's that this is a bad kid or I'm a failure as a parent or I'm a failure as a teacher because I can't reach this kid, then, you know, we're prone to want to give up. But if we can think of it as, you know, we're on this courageous journey together Gosh, we're all figuring out together how 2021, how 2022 is going to be different than right now. That's powerful. We are very undone right now as a society. Wounds that have long been there are laid bare. And my hope is that we can come back together in a way that is more whole. Education is sort of undone right now. Can we come back together in ways that makes it better for everyone, for everyone? Because we've already done the messy work of all the skeletons are out of the closet and it's all sort of scattered around the room. We're at that messy phase right Mm now. Mm -hmm. Let's put it back together, together. I love it. Absolutely love it. And knew when we started this, that we would not have any trouble filling this time. It's like, oh, the time goes so fast. <laughs> we have somebody as great as Jessica. I love that you said the part about figuring out what is going to happen in 2022. And I want to tell the listeners what's going to happen with you and us in 2020 yes. and early 22, when you're going to join us at our creating trauma sensitive schools conference and do a pre-conference session for those people who want to do a deep dive into brains, right? Yes. Yeah. We're going to light up the learning brain. 
you want to come deep dive with Jessica, I can't think of a better way to spend a few hours on the Sunday right before the conference kicks off in learning all of the brain science that she has to teach us in such an accessible way. That's exciting. Anything else, Ginger? I have enjoyed this so much that I'm just still soaking it all in and letting it permeate. So thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. We can't wait to hear more from you at the conference and just to continue our relationship with you. And we hope that everyone has really enjoyed this podcast today. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And I do, I always love working with ATN and the Trauma Sensitive Schools Conference. I'm, I'm looking forward to being together in person. I know there's a virtual option as well, which is great, but to be together in, in person in Houston. I'm looking forward exactly. to Exactly. Both in person and virtual. We're going to do it together. Yep. Clean up some mess in Trauma That's Sensitive right. Schools together. That's great. That's right. Links to Brave Brains to the books will be in the show notes of this episode. So make sure you check them out. I'm going to want to get a hold of those books. Thank you. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Join us next time when Julie and Ginger will wrap up season one of this podcast by reflecting on the lessons we've learned about trauma and resilience through this pandemic time. A special thanks to Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment and Trauma Network, visit our website at www.attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Lorraine Schneider. Thanks for listening.